0: Support for this episode of The Seams comes from Feel Good Yarn Company, a Martha Stewart American-Made finalist and the creator of Silverspun, an American-made cotton yarn spun with pure silver. Silverspun, the strength of cotton, the feel of cashmere, the healing properties of silver. Learn more at feelgoodyarncompany.com.
1: I'm Jackie Leiden, and this is The Seams. Our motto is, clothing is our common thread. In every stitch, a story. It's New York Fashion Week. We'll be checking out the spring-summer 2016 collections. They run September 10th to 17th. Now, every New York Fashion Week is a kind of trade show, playoffs, and a drama festival, all combined in one. And if you've never been to one, well, you can come along with us on our social media. Or you can follow along on the Council of Fashion Designers of America website. That's CFDA.com. There are 200 shows. But you know, the scenes attitude is all about our education, your knowledge, and what we can learn behind the scenes about the fascinating business of fashion. So with that in mind, we thought we'd start this episode with a writer who literally wrote the book on 90s fashion, Maureen Callahan. Her book, Champagne Supernovas, told the story of Kate Moss, Alexander McQueen, and Mark Jacobs, but for spring-summer 2016, we're not starting in the 90s. We wanted Maureen to tell us about the designer she's most excited about, and it turns out that she's really closely watching a, a castle on high, Givenchy, the historic haute couture house from Paris, and its creative director, Ricardo Tichy. Givenchy is opening a new flagship store in Manhattan. And guess what? We're all being invited to the Givenchy Show. Well, sort of, if you were lucky enough to get a ticket in their online lottery. Here's Maureen with more
0: about the Givenchy Show. The scope of it is massive. They're going to give away 1,200 tickets online. They're going to set aside 280 expressly for fashion students. FIT, Parsons, these are kids who are normally totally back of the bus when it comes to Fashion Week. And I think what it does is not just create a sense of buzz, which is increasingly hard to do, but it really underscores the notion of inclusiveness. I think ever really since the 90s, we've seen fashion just completely become democratized in a way that would have been unthinkable prior to that. So I think the Givenchy show is actually going to be really, really fun.
1: And you were saying it's the first time Riccardo Tichy has shown here in uh, the U.S.
0: Yes, and on the flip side, Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen, designers of the highly regarded line The Row, have pulled out of New York Fashion Week and are showing in Paris They've been having some public relations issues. They are being sued by, it's a class action suit, about 40 interns saying that they were working in Dickensian conditions and getting phone calls and emails 10, 11 o'clock at night. The lead plaintiff says she was hospitalized for dehydration. How can these billionaires who are selling $55,000 crocodile handbags pay us nothing? that to me is a very interesting, you have Givenchy going very open and inclusive, and then you have the row sort of retreating to to Paris behind the sort of iron gates.
1: Do you think it'll work? Do you think that they'll kind of get a free pass in, in Paris?
0: I think it won't really affect them at all, really. I think, you know, they'll probably take a hit, they'll probably make a settlement, and people want the Olsen twins to do ridiculous things like fifty five thousand dollar handbags and then they want to be outraged by it and then they want to see what they do next
1: so what is making the spring summer 2016
0: collections different people are looking at DKNY this season because it's the first time that the designers Yu Chow and Maxwell Osborne who um, were plucked from their own label public school are designing for DKNY, which is owned by LVMH and has effectively put Donna Karen out to pasture.
1: Yeah, these streetwise guys are taking over for Donna Karen, who's retiring from fashion. By the way, I met Dewey Chow and Max Osborne in July at their menswear show for public school. I'm not saying we're BFFs, but if you're interested in what they told me, go to The Seams on NPR.org. Anyway, Maureen told us why the public school guys
0: got the DKNY job. Their last show played almost like an audition reel for DKNY. It was very much out of her playbook, largely black and white, largely graphic, largely architectural yet feminine. And I think that from both a business standpoint and an artistic standpoint, that's going to be a very interesting show. How
1: do designers like these two, like Joey Chow and Maxwell Osborne? reinvent themselves for a line like DKNY. I mean, because what I was looking at was, you know, this very edgy, everyman stuff that really channeled streetwear. That is not what I think of with DKNY. I think of uh, maybe practical elegance.
0: Well, you have the public school guys who are among the most interesting innovative young designers very much versed in streetwear with a company like DKNY which nobody has been talking about for at least the past 10 years i think it's the most relevant DKNY has been in quite some time and interestingly too it's very much of a piece with like the larger way that these fashion houses are moving and these young designers what their aspirations are Unlike in the 90s, when designers such as Marc Jacobs and Alexander McQueen wanted to build their own brands, their own namesake labels, now these young designers aspire for an LVMH to pluck them out of their own line and install them at some luxury house. To what effect is still unclear. Maureen then told
1: us about just one of several young designers this has happened to. Alexander Wang, who had launched his own label in 2005. And then, seven years later, at the ripe old age of not even 30, he was made the creative director of Balenciaga.
0: Alexander Wang did a great job for the House of Balenciaga. I mean, their profits were extremely strong. They just fired him. So it's a a risk on both ends. I mean, the young designer is taking a risk by cross-pollinating their own branding, taking their own time and and energy and resources away from their namesake label, which is probably still in its infancy or childhood when these houses come calling. They make a lot of promises. They work these designers into nervous breakdowns basically.
1: Another label that we've been really curious about is the Kate Spade label. I mean that's really a story. You have all these people who've slapped the name of that label on everything you know from the toaster to I don't mean to be oven mitts right? I mean there's just a lot of housewares a lot of things. Um,
0: What's going on with that? The problem is It's exactly what you just described, where you cheapen the brand by the diffuse use of the name on anything you can slap it on. This is what put Calvin Klein's house into almost complete disrepair in the 80s. Coach is having a similar problem. Michael Kors is having a similar problem. They were sort of mid-level luxury and they became too accessible, too available. Michael Kors expanded far too quickly, so he had this very precipitous decline, you know, going from a billion-dollar valuation to, you know, a 50% stock tumble, practically. Coach is trying to right their ship by closing down the sort of the the idea that you can get them at factory outlets, mall outlets, and instead what they're going to do is hold sales in their flagship stores for the first time ever. Part of the allure of Coach was that it would never go on sale, just like Chanel, just like Vuitton. With Kate Spade, they shuttered Kate Spade Saturday. So you had these really watered down companies, you know, really battling for a share of the discount market. That's not their shopper in the first place. So you you have a lot of um, crisis in that sort of mid-level market.
1: You know, you spoke a moment ago about um, the democratization of fashion since the 90s, and luxury has done really well since the recession of 2008. And if you look at a line like uh, Diane von Furstenberg, that's been really, really steady, and it's done really well. But when we talk about these other brands, you also get the sense of it doesn't take much. It doesn't take too many seasons. You make some bad decisions. The market shifts away from you, and you are spiraling.
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting with Diane von Furstenberg is she has gone through her own peaks and valleys and is extremely open about that. Her brand has a very clear consistent vision and she's also smart to get into reality TV. You know, this is something that even Anna Wintour understands. You know, she participated in the September issue, the documentary about Vogue. She underscored sort of the devil wears Prada even by showing up to that premiere wearing Prada. She understands that the costume gala now has to be open to Kim Kardashian. And Kim Kardashian has to be on the cover of Vogue, things that would have been unthinkable five years ago. You know, the landscape is really changing. And there are a number of people who love fashion and consume it and take it seriously, but also take it for the fun it is, who find the idea of someone like Kim Kardashian at the forefront of these places and brands, really appalling. But the fact of the matter is, in terms of money, she is a prime mover and leader and influencer in both the worlds of fashion and beauty. I mean, there are kiosks at Sephora devoted to contouring. That's the Kim Kardashian effect.
1: Hey, it's not just Anna Wintour who's having to accept Kim Kardashian. A lot of NPR listeners were really miffed when she showed up on this show.
2: Kim Kardashian is a producer, an entrepreneur, designer, a mom, a model. She's a tabloid magazine life support system. And now she is a star of public radio. Hello, Kim Kardashian. (laughs) Welcome to Wait, Wait, Don't
0: Tell Me. How are you? I'm doing well.
1: Okay, but back to fashion week. If there's just one show that a real fashion insider like Maureen Callahan wants to see, it's Marc Jacobs. Why? Well, Marc Jacobs was the creative director of Louis Vuitton from 1997 to 2013. LVMH is the owner of Louis Vuitton and a majority stockholder in Jacobs' own label. LVMH recently made a major decision affecting his lower price line, called Marc by Marc Jacobs.
0: So Maureen has lots of questions there. LVMH restructured his label. And he was forced to shutter Mark by Mark Jacobs, and actually his public uh, stance on that was it was hysterically counterintuitive. He said it was doing so well that he had to fold it into the Mark Jacobs brand. Robert Duffy, who has been with his company since its infancy and since Mark was a baby, has stepped down, which is is sort of I mean it's like hearing that Barack and Michelle Obama. getting a divorce. Mm -hmm. It was sort of a thing that nobody really ever thought would happen. He is thinking of going public after having left Louis Vuitton but the question is how well do Marc Jacobs clothes really do commercially? Nobody really sees the numbers. Nobody knows and you don't ever see his stuff on the red carpet. He sort of hasn't mastered that crossover appeal where you have a model of the moment, like a Gigi Hadid, shot in a Marc Jacobs piece that suddenly becomes the number one most coveted and is sold out online the next day. So I'm most interested to see what he does in the direction that his brand takes in the next year, and if he does, in fact, go public.
3: How many special people change? How many lives you live is strange. Where
1: were you while we were getting high? Maureen Callahan writes about fashion for the New York Post and Vanity Fair. She's the author of Champagne Supernovas, Kate Moss, Mark Jacobs, Alexander McQueen, and the 90s Renegades who remade fashion. It's out now in paperback and she's working on a new book, which is great news for the seams. So if Maureen Callahan is one of the fashion insiders, let's go to the ultimate outsider who writes about fashion. That's Central Wilson. Cintra has barely ever been to anything related to New York Fashion Week, yet she writes about clothes all the time. She's brash, she's funny, some people find her kind of obnoxious, and others, like the seams, worship her style of speaking truth to power, especially when it comes to the fashion business and the hype around it. She used to write about this for the Critical Shopper column in the New York Times. She now has a new book called Fear and Clothing unbuckling American style. She spent five years touring America to investigate the relationship between centers of power and what people wear. And we talked about it with her when we were in Brooklyn recently. Cindra started the book with her own experiences as a kid in Marin County. She grew up on a houseboat community back in the 70s.
3: That's one of the points that I make in the book is that I feel that growing up in the San Francisco Bay Area absolutely marked me as a certain kind of fashion animal because of the cultural tendencies there. So and I and I think that you can say this about uh, all of the places that I visited was that there is a very marked and noticeable difference in all of these regions. People dress differently in every region in fealty to the power structures and uh you know, whatever the main thing going on is there.
1: And you know, Sintra has this whole theory about what she calls fashion determinism it's kind of like if you wear it it will come something like that
3: i think that as much as we are what we eat i also think that we tend to become the person whose costume we're wearing and that i recognize that in my past and growing up uh we're always doing fashion experimentation you know in your teens and early 20s and that whenever i needed to change or grow that uh clothes were always sort of the agent of my evolution. I would I would always buy boots too sophisticated for myself and then learn how to walk in them, essentially, or to, how to behave in them, really.
1: I, there are so many chapters I love, but this was one of my favorite. You write about New York high and New York low, the money belt in that chapter of the book, and you really show how the taste of Madison Avenue, which, of course, we all know is in Manhattan. And you know, we've all seen Mad Men. And then out here, going toward Queens, jamaica avenue and you say that the clothing in these two places that part of queens is known for being extremely diverse indian populations a lot of people with caribbean backgrounds out here certainly african-american but that the clothes mirror each other in this strange way the clothes that you find on madison avenue and jamaica avenue
3: there's a great book by Paul Fussell about class in America, and he had this point, which I actually sort of you know discovered on my own and reified by experiencing it, uh, that the richest people in the world are invisible, as are the poorest people in the world. But then I took that a little bit further, and I went from Madison Avenue in New York, which is probably one of the most expensive shopping districts in the world, to Jamaica Avenue, which is one of the great bargain shopping avenues of the world, and found some really remarkable similarities in terms of just the style consciousness of like ostensibly the shopping district for the poorest people and the shopping district for the richest people. They uh, In both places, they wear turquoise fur, for example, Things that you would not otherwise see <laughs> unless you were very rich or very poor. I mean, a lot of uh, women's footwear, I mean, uh, pleasers in Jamaica, I mean, I think they're ostensibly aimed at the sex trade, but they are indistinguishable from the offerings of Christian Louboutin. There's a lot of very uh, slutty, kinky, bondage PVC wear in Jamaica Avenue, which you can also find in Soho or at Agent Provocateur across the street from Barney's. I mean, it's it's interesting how slummy you get at the top of the income ladder, (laughs) clothing-wise.
1: Because at the top of the income ladder, if it looks slutty, but you paid $1,500 for it, it can't be slutty?
3: That, yeah, price is a certain inoculation against slutism, apparently. But I mean, you can dress like a pimp on Madison Avenue by going to Giorgio Armani and buying an ostrich skin jacket, you know, or Dolce Gabbana and buying a white disco suit. But in Jamaica, there's only one choice. I mean, it's like I find that very rich people like to dress sexy, as do very poor people. But they do it for different reasons. And then... On Madison Avenue, you also have this one other option. You can also dress like the first lady of the United States. You can't do that so much in Jamaica, Queens. I mean, really what you're talking about is opportunity. And uh, if you're window shopping on Madison Avenue and you're a 16-year-old girl, your jobs in the world, I mean, what you can go forth and make yourself is uh, limitless. You can be anybody, you can be a CEO, you can be secretary of state. And if you are shopping in Jamaica, Queens, and you're a 16 year old girl, you have two choices pretty much, and they are hooker and
1: nurse. Along with all the stores in Queens, in these neighborhoods, with all this more exotic looking stuff, lots and lots of uniforms for nurses and dental technicians and and people who work. Um, You know, there's another quote you have in here. You just talked about Paul Fusel. Was it, is it Blake? How to recognize the meritocracy in things?
3: The Blake quote that I I wrote, uh, this was my last job for the Times, was writing about the Isabel Morant boutique, which I realized was incredibly similar to the Army-Navy store around the corner from it. And uh, I quoted William Blake at the end. It's a fool sees not the same tree that a wise man sees, says William Blake. And just see value where it is. I mean, it doesn't, you don't have to pay $365 for an army jacket unless you need to for that, you know, conferred status of brand magic.
1: Well, you just said it, the conferred status of brand magic. You know, there is something so subliminal sometimes about what people are willing to pay for an item and we're talking about fashion so we'll stick with that that we're not consciously thinking about and you're not immune from it even though you know all this stuff <laughs>
2: <laughs> i
1: just to the point where I have to ask you about the most expensive thing you ever scraped together to buy like the most expensive thing you ever couldn't afford but you had to have it anyway Okay, I've, in my defense,
3: Alexander McQueen was actually alive when I bought that dress. I mean, it was still his line. It was not Sarah Burton. It was really Alexander McQueen. But, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not a label whore in that if I can find it at the Salvation Army, I will. But every once in a while, you know, there's just, if you find, and I actually kind of maintain, and I hate to say this, but I do think it's true. You can bend your credit card backward if you find a perfect item, and I have indulged myself a few times. I have actually never worn that Alexander McQueen dress since the first time I wore it, but the skirt that I bought, I wore, you know, weekly for 10 years, easy. Not 10 years, but five.
1: Sintra Wilson's new book is called Fear and Clothing, Unbuckling American Style. It's out right now, and I advise you to get it, see her if she's on tour, email her at cintrawilson.com. She'll probably write you back, and you'll find something really energetic and snarky in her fashion writing. If that is, snark is your thing, because, you know, I like snark. Listen, here's one thing Cynthia says. Style can liberate you or destroy you, and that's true, and I want you to keep it in mind during this New York fashion week. Take it with a big grain of salt. So you say you're more of a conceptual fashion type. Maybe you're into futuristic-looking fashion. What does that mean exactly? Some kind of 3D-printed wearable tech? Bustles and corsets made from fiberglass? How about this for futuristic fashion? Go back to 1964 and imagine how fashion was going to look 60 years into the future. That's what designer André Corrèges did. Veronique Island is the fashion news editor for New York magazine's The Cut, and she recently wrote about Courage and other designers who loved the space age.
2: So Courage was doing these space-inspired collections like the Moon Girl collection from 1964 with, you know, the go-go boots and the helmets and that kind of thing. With Courage, it was really crazy because he actually also was designing electric cars, like little bubble-shaped things, and the goal was to create a Courage world where there would be apartment buildings and cars and clothes and all these things designed by him. So he really had this what what I learned about him was that he really had this kind of overarching vision for it.
1: I never knew that. So he, uh, not only what to put on your body, but how to live in toto.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's really this, like, this kind of Jetsons idea of what's going to happen and how the future is going to be so much easier. Mm-hmm. And then more recently, Hussein Chalayan, he's experimented with so many different technological things. He's really on the vanguard of that. And so for his spring 2000 show, he had a dress called the airplane dress that was made out of this material material that almost looked like airplane fuselage. I think it was made of fiberglass. And it was operated with a remote control. So this shell would kind of come off, and there was like a pink tulle underskirt. And then for spring 2007, he did a show where there were these animatronic dresses that would actually change shape. So they started with like a Gibson girl corseted look, Mm Would move on to the flapper, would kind of reference Paco Rabanne and have like kind of a '60s dress, and at the end the dress just you know came off, or the model was nude. So it was sort of a funny like take on fashion history, but it had that sort of futuristic tech element in there too. You know, there are very few people who push those kinds of boundaries now. Um, There's a lot of interest
1: in like 3D printing. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because the whole notion of fashion is tech and the 3D printing you just mentioned and laser cutting. We're not necessarily wearing as much tech as I guess I thought we'd be by 2015. Right. We don't go around in mylar most of the time.
2: Well, wearable tech, you know, has been such a an interesting thing to cover because, you know, these devices are really exciting and the tech community is really excited about it. But I think there's sort of a disjunction sometimes with fashion. How are we going to get women to actually want to wear this and sometimes it's you know made very pink or pretty or something and I don't think that they've quite found the way to resonate with people I think a lot of the devices that I've seen I still say but can't you do this on your phone or why would this replace a phone or a watch or, or whatever there's a huge race to see you know who can actually make the wearable that people will want to wear and that isn't nerdy. I think that the part of the problem is when you try to design and make things to space age, it doesn't really have that
1: appeal to everyday people. So what's the name of your story? And this is in the magazine? Yes,
2: and it's called The Future is Perfect. Our amazing art and photo teams found these illustrations from 1893 that are kind of a satirical take on oh people are going to be wearing Elizabethan garb again in the 1930s and it's sort of meant to be silly and not realistic but there are other predictions that were made that were realistic we also looked at movies like Blade Runner and The Fifth Element these movies that were set in, you know, AD 4000 or something, Barbarella being a huge
1: one. The Jane Fonda movie from the late 60s, in which I just remember um, female power warrior look.
2: Yeah, a lot of like fur pelts involved yeah. and all different kinds of things. So it's sort of funny to look at these over the top costume designs. And some of them have been hugely influential on designers like Tank Girl, which is a movie that I don't think made a huge splash at the time. People are constantly referencing that for their collections. You know, something like Barbarella obviously comes up constantly, or or the costumes that Gautier did for The Fifth Element were huge. (laughs)
1: Maronie Kyland is the fashion news editor for The Cut. Her story is in the current issue of New York Magazine on newsstands now. It's it for this episode of The Seams. It was produced by Elaine Heinzman. Our editor is Marcus Rosenhall. Our intern is Georgie Goldstein, and our web designer is Justin Miko. Our theme song, Fortune Cookie, is from the album The Further Adventures of Low Straight Jackets, and we we'll use it with permission from the band, Low Straight Jackets. The Seams is sponsored by the Feel Good Yarn Company. Check them out at feelgoodyarncompany.com. And to see photos from the stories featured in this episode, please look for us on Instagram, Pinterest, Facebook, and Tumblr. Just search for The Seams Podcast. Talk to us on Twitter. Our handle is Podcast. If you like what you hear on The Seams, please rate our podcast on iTunes and write us a review. And so check us out this week as The Seams goes to Fashion Week in New York. We'll be on NPR next weekend and be sharing cool stuff every day on our social media. I'm Jackie Lydon, your head seamstress. Thanks for listening.